We are beginning a new collection of teachings today. Um, you might have seen it on our Instagram, and we're going to start our new collection. It's called Vocation. And we're going to explore questions like, what is my purpose? Why do I exist? What has God called me to do? Why the hell did God place me in the job that I'm at? How does work play into my faith walk with Jesus? And the question that you might be asking is this, why spend time diving deeper into vocation? And so I'm going to read you all some stats, okay? Because I know you all love stats. People in San Francisco work an average of 44 hours a week. And back when we were commuting, you know, before y'all worked virtually from home, it was actually 49 hours a week that we work here in San Francisco. That puts us number two among major cities ranked in time spent at work. We are number two. Sorry, type threes, but we're number two. I mean, work is really important to us here in San Francisco. I mean, just look at this last year. In the midst of a global pandemic, with all the traumatic things happening in the world, How many of you found yourselves working more than ever? Come on, let's be real. We find that without the boundaries set by in-person work hours, that we will literally work ourselves into the ground. Come on, is that just me? Can I get an amen? How many of you experienced that? You would think that if we spent this much time at work, 44 to 49 hours a week, surely we must love what we do then, right? Like if we spend so much time at work, we have to love what we do, right? In a 2019 poll, they said that 55% of millennials were unsatisfied with their career paths. I would be very curious to figure out what percentage that is here. It says 76% of people were open to new career opportunities, and only 20% felt passionate about their jobs. That's one in five people in here that actually feels passionate about what they spend 44 to 49 hours a week doing. Maybe you've heard it said that millennials are the purpose-driven generation. In other words, you know, we're not just looking for a paycheck. Like, we want to do work that's meaningful. We're not like the boomers. You know, screw capitalism. We're going to do work that changes the world for the better. We want to do work that's actually meaningful. And then six months later, you find yourself working on an app that generates a variety of toilet sounds, and you're like, what am I doing, right? A recent global survey... That's a real app, by the way. You could um, download it from the app store. It generates different tones of toilet sounds. Anyway, a recent global survey actually found that millennials are the least purpose-driven generation. Listen, even the boomers beat us out, y'all. 48% of boomers reported prioritizing purpose over pay. 38% Gen X. And only 30% millennials reported prioritizing purpose over pay. In other words, hey, I mean, we're mostly millennials. Are there any Gen Z in the house just by? No Gen Z. My son is Gen Alpha. Did you know the next generation is Gen Alpha? Yeah, it's, it's all, all full circle. We went from A to Z. We're going back to A. But we talk a big game with nothing much to show for it. One more stat. In a similar survey... of the people indicated that they would be willing to trade a percentage of their earnings for greater meaning at work. 
And what this tells us is that we're actually deep inside. We're hungry for more than just a paycheck. We want to know that our work means something. We want to feel that there is purpose and meaning behind what we do with our lives and our vocation and our careers. Maybe you've been in work so long and you've been in such crappy positions or crappy companies that you forgot that actually deep inside, you want your work to matter. How many projects have you been a part of where you asked yourself, you looked in the mirror, what am I doing? What is this actually contributing to the world? Let's be real, probably most of us. Shoot, I'm a pastor and I still have those moments. But there's this deep down sense that we are called for something more. Or maybe more true, maybe us, many of us feel this disconnect from purpose and vocation. Or maybe for more of us, many of us don't even have a clue what our purpose or our calling is. And so we find ourselves aimless in the midst of job searches, career plans, and asking, what do we do with our lives? What are we supposed to do with our lives? Well, I have great news and not so good news. The not so good news is I don't have the answer for you. But the great news is I believe we can lean into the one that does. And so during this next collection, my prayer for you, our heart for you, is that work would become more than just a paycheck. That what you do, what you set your life to do, would actually flow from a sense of calling and a sense of purpose. See, vocation, the word itself, it means so much more than just a job. The Latin root for the word vocation is actually vocare, which means to call. It denotes a sense of calling, something greater and deeper than just making ends meet. It's more than just your job. In fact, your vocation might not even be your job. It might be your passion project that you work on on the weekends. It may be the way you serve your church and your community. It may be the relationships that you're investing in. Your vocation is that deep sense of calling of what you were created to do. And so in this collection, we're going to look to our creator, the one who has both created us and called us, and we're going to explore vocation through the eyes of our maker. Hey, blink at me if you're excited about that. Come on. That's good. Now, one of the most anxiety-inducing questions to be asked in the world is this. Tell me about yourself. You know it's true. Unless you're weird, like you're a recruiter, right? You're not in this category. But most of us, when you're asked, tell me about yourself, there's a sense of anxiety. Come on, have you been there? Like, what do I share? And I find that most people's default answer when asked, tell me about yourself, is by telling you what they do for a living or what they have accumulated as accolades. Unless you're in church, like Christians are so weird, you'll be like, hey, tell me about yourself. Oh, I'm Abba Daddy's son. I am a child of the Most High. I am Daddy God's favorite child. And now in the church, you know, you'll just start with your deepest pain. Hey, I'm an Enneagram type three. And I just long to achieve something in my life so I know my, I'm not worthless, right? We just, we're weird in the church. But most people, when you ask, tell me about yourself, recruiters will test. They'll start by telling you what their job is, what their career is, or maybe something significant that they've done. And what this tells us is this. There's nothing wrong with that. But this tells us something is that for many of us, we connect who we are to what we do. 
We connect who we are to what we've accomplished. And in the same way, when we ask questions like, what is my purpose? Why do I exist? Most of us fundamentally believe that our purpose, our reason for existence is tied to something we're supposed to do. Let's be real. You grew up in the church. When we talk about purpose, why God created me, most of us think about something that we're supposed to be doing. And let's be real. Most of us never feel like we're actually doing it, right? See, my purpose is to build orphanages across the world. My purpose is to set up my family to be well off. That's why I invested so much in crypto. That's why I watch all these YouTube videos. My purpose is to plant a church. My purpose is to make the greatest art of our generation. I'm going to create the Donda of my generation, right? And while I do believe that God has purposed us for such a time as this, while I do believe that God has called us to do amazing things here on this earth, we have to take a step back. Maybe our purpose is more than just what we are called to do. So like with most things in life, we are going to find answers to our soul's deepest questions by looking to Pixar, right? Pixar, every film just seems to tug at the heartstrings and answer life's most deepest questions. And I want to take a look at the, the film Toy Story today. How many of you guys love Toy Story? I mean, I grew up, I was Andy's age. I, I grew up with Andy. Um, Toy Story is the story of my life. And at first glance, the Toy Story films are very cute stories about lovable toys with big personalities finding their way in our world, going on these crazy adventures. But if you really think about it and you look deeper into Toy Story, it's actually really dark. It's actually really sinister. It's actually really disturbing. So don't show Toy Story to your kids. I'll tell you why. Think about it. These toys exist for one reason and one reason only, to be used and abused by little children that don't give any craps about them. They live under this constant pressure to be played with. They're terrified of being ripped apart by grubby little hands, chewed up by dogs, or God forbid, thrown away. And they live with this constant fear that one day... Their owner will stop playing with them and move on. Think about it. Woody and, and Buzz's lives are not happy and fun. They're always living with this fear that Andy's going to forget about me. Andy's going to get a better toy. Andy's going to get a newer, shinier toy. Look, even in the first film, Buzz Lightyear, a newer, shinier toy comes. What happens? Woody is forgotten about, right? Even at the end of the Toy Story 3 franchise, well, the original end before they made Toy Story 4, it ends with what Andy giving his toys away because he no longer needed them. They no longer served a purpose. Listen, that's some dark-ish right there. <laughs> Next time you watch that movie, yeah, just, just think about it. You will feel so much empathy for these little toys. They're living in constant fear and anxiety that they'll be tossed aside. But I want you to think about this. Unfortunately, I think many of us have formed theologies that are more in line with Toy Story than with the Word of God. Most of us live like Woody or Buzz. We live under this constant pressure to perform and please God. 
to obey him and do what he's called us to do. And underneath it is this underlying fear that when we cease being useful for the kingdom of God, we'll be tossed aside. If you ask a room full of believers, what is your purpose? Here's some of the answers you might have heard that you might have even said. My purpose is to live for the glory of God. My purpose is to make disciples of all nations, to win the lost. My purpose is to be God's chosen instrument, to make known the name of Jesus, to love the overlooked and the oppressed, to be used by God. These are the answers that we give. All things that we do. And these are all great answers, but let's be real. The majority of your weeks are not spent doing any of those things. Come on, the majority of your week, you're not making the name of Jesus known. I know you guys. The majority of your week, you're not spent in worship or in reading the word or in prayer. The majority of your weeks is not spent going outside of your house to love the overlooked and the oppressed. And so we're always walking around with this existential conflict on the inside of us that I am not fulfilling the purpose for which God created me. How many of you ever thought of that? Like, God, I, I am not living my purpose out. I'm not living the reason why you created me. I'm living so much beneath it. I'm far from it. And and it causes you to feel like, God, you must be disappointed with me. God, I'm failing you. God, how could you be proud of me? And beneath it all is this fear that God will throw me away and find someone more useful. I don't know why, but we teach this theology to little kids in the church. And I don't know if you, you've been taught this, but this is probably the most harmful thing I was taught growing up, is that if you don't open your heart and obey what God wants you to do, he'll move on and find someone else who will. Come on, have you ever heard that? It's kind of like, hey, kids, make sure you listen to the voice of God and you obey him, because if you don't do it, you might miss out. He's going to go to Ying next to you. Oh, wait, Ying's not holy enough. Going to go to Iris, right? We have this twisted theology that if we don't obey the call of God, if we're not always on it, he's going to move on without us. But I say, really? Because when I look at someone like Jonah in the Bible, God calls Jonah to the Ninevites. And what does Jonah do? He does the exact opposite. He actually quite literally turns the opposite way and starts running away. Does God say, all right, thank you. Next, who's ready to go to the Ninevites? No. He doesn't just throw Jonah away when he runs away. He actually goes after him. Actually, he sends him a whale. Listen, if the priority was to get the job done, it would have been so much easier to find someone else, wouldn't it? But God, his heart was so set on Jonah that he sent a whale after him. Listen, I used to think the whale was God's punishment or judgment of Jonah, But no, the whale was a sign of God's love for Jonah. Listen, some of you feel like you're in the belly of a whale right now. Let me tell you, it is not God's judgment or punishment for you. It's actually God's sign of love for you that I love you too much to leave you where you're at. I love you too much to let you go. God's MO has never been to discard us as soon as you cease being useful for his kingdom. Listen, God, some of you need to hear this. God is not like your boss at your tech company. He is not like your manager who will fire you if you stop producing or find someone who could do it quicker. You, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but maybe I'm just vain and I'm, I'm about to show how stupid I really am, but you ever leave a job and in the back of your mind you're thinking, oh, y'all don't know who you're missing out on. Like when I walk out of here, 
It's going to fall apart. Company's going under. It's about to be a, a show, right? And so you leave thinking, oh, my God, they're going to miss out. Everything is going to fall to pieces. And then three months later, you see, wow, I'm so easily replaceable. I got to be preaching to someone in the house. (laughs) But not so in the kingdom of God. Not so in the eyes of God. That if you were to run away, you were so irreplaceable that he would send whales after you. I really hope someone in our church has a testimony of an actual whale coming after them. That would be sick. And so this is the difference between... Viewing yourself as an invention versus viewing yourself as a creation. An invention is only as good as its usefulness. Its purpose is purely functional, what you do. Listen, if I build a computer for gaming and it crashes all the time and it can barely play games on it, I mean, JP knows. JP is a Twitch streamer, amazing gamer. I have not watched any of your stuff, but I just assume you're really good. But I'm sure you built your computer, you set your setup, but if if your computer's always crashing and it's slow... What do you do? Number one, you try to fix it. But if it's not fixable, what do you do? You throw it away and get something that does work. But if it still doesn't work, or maybe this, maybe technology advances so much and a new computer comes out, what do you do with the old one? You get rid of it. It's obsolete. Just by show of hands, how many of you carry an iPhone 8 or less or earlier? Wow, we are pretty, okay, it's okay. I don't mean to shame you. I don't mean to shame you, seriously. iPhone 8s are great. They are amazing. But let me tell you something. How many of you have an iPhone 4 or an iPhone 3? Eventually, even our iPhone 12, the the, the iPhones that we have, are going to become obsolete because technology is constantly advancing. What happens with the old phones? We get rid of them. They're no longer needed. They're obsolete. And so an invention is purely functional, but what is a creation? A creation exists for one purpose, for delight. It doesn't exist because it's useful. It exists because it brings joy and delight. Listen, I I know you see a lot of sculptures here. I did none of them. But when I did take a stab at ceramics, I was trying to build cups um, for my wife for our four-year anniversary. And this is how you know I'm bad. The cups were supposed to be about this big. But it ended by being this small. <laughs> there were supposed to be teacups. I was going to give it to Krista, going to pour us some tea. But it was so small that to this day, we use it for soy sauce. And listen, even though I created these tiny little teacups that are not functional, I just cannot get myself to give it away because I created it. It brings me joy and it brings me delight. And I think most of us view ourselves, if we were to be honest, more as inventions That, God, you created me to do something for you, to do something for your kingdom. And when I don't do it, I'm not living out my purpose. When actually we are created to be creations, purely for God's delight. But but check this out. This concept of creation is still limited. Because how many of you have created something in the past, come back to it 10 years later, and think, nah, that wasn't it? Um, I used to be a musician. Um, I used to do hip-hop and rap. It's been about seven years And um, the other day, 
actually, this week I was in San Diego at this conference, and you know, people that knew about my music were bragging for me. You know, Krista's the only one that tells people about my music. I never tell people about it because I'm slightly embarrassed. But someone started opening up my YouTube channel and listening to the songs that I created eight years ago. And let me tell you something. It did not bring me delight. <laughs> Maybe eight years ago, the music that I created, the creation brought me delight, but now all it brings me is cringe, okay? So even this idea of creation is still limited because if we're created by God, what if he gets bored of us? What if we don't age well in his mind? So Jesus takes it a step further. And this is kind of where we're going to land today. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, many of you know it, it's famous, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, after preaching perhaps the greatest sermon he's ever preached during his time here on earth, he gathers people around and he says something. He says, hey, come over here. Let me teach y'all how to pray. And he begins his prayer while everyone is listening with these two words, our Father. And for us, you know, of course, our Father. As soon as someone up here, any, any Christian you go to, if you start with our Father, the next thing you're just going to say is, hallowed be that, right? We, we know the Lord's Prayer. But you have to understand, when Jesus taught this prayer to everyone, this changed everything. Because up until that point, people knew God only as creator. They only knew God as master. They only knew God as Lord or war commander. They only knew God in those ways. But now this so-called Messiah comes, and he says, call God Father. And not even my father, right? Not just my daddy, but we say our father. That means he's your father. He's your father. He's your father. See, Jesus was doing more than just giving everyone a new template for prayer. He was giving everyone a new way of relating to God. What Jesus was saying is, I want you, when you approach God, to prioritize him as Father. Yes, he's your creator. Yes, he's your master. Yes, he's your Lord. But first and foremost, when you come into the presence of God, when you think about why you were created, when you think about your relational context with him, the primary identity that I want you to see when you look at him is Father. And this changes everything because we ask. And you know, I used to preach this all the time, but it hits a lot more these days for obvious reasons. But why do a father and a mother bring a child into the world? Is it so that they'd become successful and make them lots of money? Maybe, honey, boo-boo, I don't know. Is it so that they would bring their name glory so that the world would know the Cho name? Is it so that they would change the world and make it better? Is it so that they would worship and bow down to them? Imagine if we did half the things that we do to God with our earthly fathers. Like, I show up to my dad next Sunday, and when I open the door, he's saying, Hey, son. And I go, Father God, I come into your presence. I am in awe. Like, we would, people would think we're weird and crazy, Imagine if I came to dad and I said, dad, I'm so sorry. I didn't tell anyone at work about you. 
No one knows the Cho name in my office. I'm so sorry, God. Imagine if you came before your dad after a month of not seeing him and saying, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry I didn't sing songs with your name in it. Right? We would never do these things with our earthly fathers. A father and a mother bring a child into this world, not because of what they can do for them, but because they want someone to love. What is your purpose? Why do you exist? I'll give you the answer. It's simple. To be a recipient of God's love. To receive God's love and affection. To be in a loving relationship with a good father. Not to bring glory to the name of Jesus. Not to lead your office to salvation. Not to adopt all the orphans in the world. Not even to worship him or pray or read scripture or meditate. Those things are important, but they're not the primary reason why you exist. They're not the primary purpose for which why God created you. He created you first and foremost for the purpose of love. Listen. You would have been so proud of your pastor when we were in the hospital. First of all, it was, it was 30 minutes before CG, okay? And, you know, who's in my CG? JP, uh, Joseph, right? It was 30 minutes before CG, about a month and a half ago. And then Crystal walks out of the room. I'm just waking up from nap. And she said, uh, Mickey, don't freak out. But uh, I think my water broke. I'm like, rule number one, do not freak out externally. But internally, I was freaking the F out. And so I'm saying, Krista, don't worry. Every three seconds, I'm telling her, don't worry. And she's like, are you sure you're okay? Don't worry. Hey, let's just, let's just look it up. I look it up. Okay, maybe your water didn't break. We're not really sure. But let's just take a shower on it. So I jump in the shower. And in the shower, I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. It's happening, it's happening, it's happening. Not yet, God. It's too early. I get out of the shower. And she's like, Mickey, I'm pretty sure my water broke. And so we rush to the hospital. It's like 8 p.m. at night. And so we're in there. We get uh, admitted to our room, and then about four hours later, um, the baby's still not far enough along for her to start pushing, so we have to induce labor. So they give her some medicine to help her induce labor, and then the contractions started. And man, if you've ever seen a woman get contractions, it is no joke. I will never... Men, you will never feel an ounce of the pain and hardship on your body that women have to face. Listen, even my tattoo, I have such a low pain tolerance that when I was getting my tattoo, the moment the needle touched my skin, I started tearing up. And internally, I'm like, I can't do it. It was a five-hour session. I could barely do it. Even that is just a fraction of what women have to go through. Your pastor was in deep pain. And so around 6 a.m., 10 hours into it, she's like, give me the epidural. (laughs) Like, just give it to me, y'all. And so she gets pumped with the epidural. There are some complications, but it worked out. Finally, about 15 hours into it, they're ready to push, right? 15 hours into it, they're ready to push. And so my wife, your pastor, she begins pushing. Guess how long? She pushed for six hours. Listen, if you've ever had to take a really big dump... I'm just kidding. That's, that's not a good analogy. Forget that out of your mind. But I'll tell you what. Seeing her push 
And seeing her go through all of this intense labor, all the pain, the sweat, the tears, the blood, the fluids, all of it, when baby finally came out, when Zion's head popped through, I remember thinking, all of this was worth it. And as he came out of the womb and, you know, Krista was holding him for the first time and I got to hold him and I looked into his eyes, I wasn't thinking, NBA one day, we'll be set. I wasn't thinking, Harvard, Berkeley. I wasn't thinking, gosh, I hope you make an impact in this world. I remember the only thing that I could think of gazing into my son's face was finally, finally I can love you. You're here. Not so you can do anything for us. But now finally, I can shower you with love and all the kisses and the hugs and the affirmations. I could finally say, that's my boy. I can finally look into him and say, you are my son. I love you so, so much and give everything that I have for him. What did we go through all this for? 22 hours in the hospital, six hours of laboring, thousands of dollars of baby stuff, which many of you contributed to. Thank you so much. Did we do it all so Zion can do something for us or become something? No, babies are useless. Babies are literally good for three things. You're going to learn this really quick. They're good at eating, sleeping, and pooping. There is no other function. They are not good at anything else. There's nothing they can do for you that will practically make your life better. You don't bring a baby into this world because they can do something for you. I can't tell Zion, go make me a ham sandwich, bro. He can't do it. He's useless. But Zion, our son, my baby boy, we brought you into this world for one reason. We love you. And we want to spend the rest of our days loving you. And I don't care if you go to jail one day. I don't care if you get fired from 15 jobs. I don't care if you never do a single significant in your life. You will never outgrow that purpose. Matthew 3, 13 through 17, probably the most significant moment in Jesus' life. And you know it's in chapter 3, so you know it's not the cross. You know it's not a miracle. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It, It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. I promise I'll be done soon, Paula. I know you're back, you know. We have back problems, so we know. Before Jesus performed a single miracle, before Jesus preached a single sermon, before Jesus cast out a single demon, before Jesus died for our sins and resurrected from the grave, the Father in front of the entire world or everyone around says this, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Meaning that the Father's delight 
has nothing to do with what you can produce. Jesus did nothing. He made some cool wood pieces of wood art. I don't know, carpenters, whatever they do. But Jesus did nothing of significance up until that moment, yet the Father boldly announces, this is my son. I love him, and I am well pleased with him. Come on, most of us in the church live our lives pleading with God. God, what can I do to please you? God, what, what can I do with my life to bring you pleasure and delight? But how sad is it that many of us never discover he already is? Before you became successful, before you landed that job, before you opened the Bible, before you uttered a word in prayer or worship, he said to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. And listen, church, hear me, if you don't hear anything else today, until you understand this, you will spend the rest of your life chasing God's pleasure, not realizing you had it all along. And the result really is anxious Christians. I mean, if we're to be real, most of us in the church are anxious all the time because we feel like we're so out of the will and the purpose of God. But what does this mean for us? It means that even when you're not doing anything amazing for the kingdom of God, even when you're not worshiping or praying or reading his word, even when he's the last on your list of priorities, he is never sorry that he created you. Listen, there's a big difference between those who try to live their lives earning God's favor and those who live their lives from God's favor. Now the pressure of performing is gone. You are free, free from the anxiety of trying to figure out your God-given purpose, free from the fear that God will throw you away when you're no longer useful, free from the lie that God only made you because he wants you to do something for him. Now you can freely love. Don't you want to get rid of that burden? God, now I can just freely love you. I don't have to be anxious about, am I getting it right? Am I at the right job? Am I doing the right things? Now you are already delighted with me. You've already announced to heaven and all of the realms that I am your son or daughter and you are pleased with me. Not living to earn your love, but living from it. I promise this is really where I'm closing Pastors have to say it a few times, and I've been gone for a while, so please bear with me, but I promise this is the last part. Famous passage, Psalm 139, 13 through 16. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. And listen to this part. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I think um, it's a really cute verse, right? We like to put it on mugs and T-shirts or maybe quotes with flowers around it, and we like to post that and say, oh, man, God was thinking about me before time. This is actually a very scandalous passage from the psalmist. What's he saying? He's saying, before you were formed, before you were clothed, I saw your unformed body. I want you to think about maybe the most shameful thing thing you've done in your life. Or maybe for those of you who are very, you know, 
Actually, I won't do that illustration. I was going to say, imagine you're naked before someone, but don't. Um, But imagine that everything you've ever done, it's out there. It's exposed. Think about the most shameful, most, the thing that you regret doing the most. Think about that. Now think, before you came into being, God saw you in your nakedness, in your shamefulness, with your regrets, with the deepest shame for the things that you've done. He saw all that, yet he still said, I'm including you in my book. He saw you when you didn't spend any time in prayer for the last three years. He saw you when you hurt that person that you were supposed to love so much. He saw you do those things that you deeply regret, and he said, still, you're in my book. Still, you're my son. Still, you're my daughter. And still, I love you. And still, with you, I am well pleased. That's scandalous. And so listen, we're going to get into what is it that God's called me to do? You know, what is my calling? What, what am I supposed to do with this life? What am I actually supposed to do for your kingdom? God? We're going to get into that. But unless we understand this, We're going to spend our entire lives chasing a purpose that we're already fulfilling. That there's nothing more than this. God, I receive your love. I just want to be loved by you. And our response becomes, here, let me love you in return. 